to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and here with Sarah Pasquale again, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are continuing in the book of Samuel and learning a whole lot more about David and, um, or getting to meet David, I guess, uh, for the first time this week. Um, and uh, But before then, uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about Jonathan's family, particularly his son, as we kicked off uh, the reading this week with Jonathan stepping to the plate and defeating yeah. those Philistines. Um, yeah. And so uh, there, there's some parallels, I think, between here and the Goliath story, but we'll, we'll talk about that uh, probably a little more next week. Um, but but the phrasing that gets invoked here, the sort of uh, to these uncircumcised Philistines, I think um, sometimes we read that as like slang derogatory, but, but I think it's also a declaration for someone like Jonathan going, look, our God's the covenant God. We're the covenant people. They are not. Mm-hmm. So why would we be afraid of them? And, um, and, and sort of explains even his like, let's go get them. I don't care if it's just me and my armor bearer. We're going to, we're going to go take them. Uh, and that's what happens. Yeah. I feel like there's hope. I just, I really liked this story because of the statement that Jonathan makes. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And we've seen the word of the Lord return to Israel through Samuel. And then we see God coming in and delivering his people. Um, and it's such a stark contrast to so much of, and everybody did was right what was right in their own eyes, which we read in Judges. Um, This, like, God is just, we can see God at work, and he's always been at work, but there's this new way that he is at work as he's preparing to raise up David um, and just kind of returning in faithfulness to Israel, not that he ever left. Yeah. And, and the introduction of Jonathan, I mean, he, as you guys are reading, like Jonathan's a pretty legit guy mm-hmm. and, um, we'll see his humility. We'll see like he is next in line for the throne. Like Saul, um, if after Saul, even though Samuel has already said that the, the, the your throne will pass from you, but, um, like J- Jonathan has a rightful claim for what is his dad's. And, um, yeah, we're going to see him very humbly take a different kind of route. Um, he is, he seems to be a very faithful character introduced, uh, to us here and so uh but we get his jonathan's dad being not smart and saying things like hey don't eat anything and jonathan decides to eat even though he didn't even know his dad said that and is invigorated he's sort of given life um and then when people tell him that his dad told not to eat he's sort of like why would he do that and we could have won so much more if people had been eating and then they decide to go ahead and eat everything they could there were before the even things that had blood on them and at least Saul does the right thing here tells him to stop um but um yeah it, it's just a, a weird story that um ultimately we'll, we'll see cause some problems because um Saul's prayers go unanswered and he starts thinking it's because of this um even though this isn't even a law that Saul enacted but um they ultimately cast lots they figure out Jonathan's the one who ate even though Saul said don't eat <laughs> And Saul seems to be like dad of the year, ready to kill his own son. And the, the, it takes the rest of the army to plead with Saul to not kill Jonathan. So it's such a weird story. Yeah, I just feel like Saul is a, like, it, he's just a, a hot mess. We see him just scrambling for whatever kind of power he can gain. And so I think he saw Jonathan's success with the Philistines and he wanted that for himself. And so, you know, Jonathan did it through trusting in God. And so Saul's like, I'm going to make these, these vows and we're going to make this promise and do this sort of like, again, like superstitious sort of incantation that if you 
does something a certain way, he's going to get God's favor. But God desires mercy and not sacrifice. So then uh, they're not successful. They're struggling. So Saul wants clarity and he doesn't seek God. He does this casting lot sort of thing and determines that it's his son. And then we see Saul, like Chris just said, being willing to kill his own son so that Saul can ensure his own victory in battle. Um, and, And Jonathan's only saved because of Israel's intervention. And so this is such a direct contrast to our God who sacrificed his son to ensure salvation or many. Um, our God did the opposite of what Saul is doing here in this situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, he's, he's a pretty hot mess uh, from here on out. Um, and also I hope we are continuing to learn not to make rash vows here. <laughs> it just never goes well. And I know we don't like promise to kill our kids or something, but I don't know, like don't make a vow to give up social media before God and then bail on it. Yeah. Or um, I don't know what other kind of vows, but but don't make a promise unless you intend to keep it. Yeah. Fasting, things like that. Yeah. Ways, yeah. Um, and then Saul fights Israel's enemies. So Saul does what he does and knows what to do. And like Saul was good at battle and, and he wins some battles, but his whole kingship and the sort of the narrative kind of hints at this, like his whole kingship is marked by Israel being mm-hmm. at war with people. Um, and, War is not necessarily a bad thing, but their goal in the promised land is to be restful people, right. not warring people. And and even their design as a nation is not that they would be war hungry as a nation, no, that they would be a nation not marked by that. And, and so for Saul to be the war king it is just not the king that I think that God designs for his people. And so, yeah. yeah, I think for us, you know, we can take this parallel and look at our picture of how we walk in Christ. For those who are not in Christ, they're not walking in rest. There's constant stress and constant tension because everyone is always working for something. But for those of us who are in Christ, we can still, we can have a rest in what we do. Even as we like go through life and face trials and struggles, we have hope and we have a rest that is not obtained for those who, are, who don't know the Lord or are not walking in obedience to God. Yeah. And it's all, um, it's disobedient again and the Lord rejects him again. So uh, just doesn't seem to want to follow the, the specific commands and, and straight up disobeys uh, when he spares Agag, he spares certain animals, even though he was told, and he puts up a statue for himself. Uh, and, and it's kind of a funny moment when Samuel shows up and Saul's like, I killed everything. And Samuel's like, I think I hear some oxes of sheep. Are you sure you killed everything? Um, and then Saul blames the people. He's like, well, they brought back the animals. I only brought back Agag. They brought back the animals. And um, the desire here, the desire is for obedience, not sacrifice. That's sort of like the main teaching here um, is, is just because you're sacrificial, feel like you're giving up stuff. Like if it's not what God has asked you to do, like, don't don't just make up your own parameters for things. Like, yeah, like don't take a job that offers you more money and say, God, I'm going to give you that extra money if you haven't even prayed about the job. Right. Or uh, don't date someone who doesn't love the Lord because your plan is to win them over to Christ. Yeah, just because you say you're doing it for the Lord doesn't mean it's actually what the Lord wanted you to do. Right. And um, and that seems to be a big big deal for Saul because at some point Saul Samuel reminds him, look, like at first you were kind of humble, you were even hiding in the luggage, like you were small, you you thought of yourself as small, um, but now you think like you could just do whatever you want. Like, that's not okay. Like that's pride. And, and, and I think it's being challenged here um, as a theme in this book of like pride versus humility. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see Saul tear a bit of Samuel's robe, which was a bit of foreshadowing in that as well, because we're going to see David do that to Saul. Um, but Samuel uses it as a teaching device here, sort of the, the kingdom being torn from Saul. He's, he is trying to hold on to whatever he can and he will fight to, uh, to hold on to whatever he can, because that's what Saul knows. Saul knows how to fight. And so he's just, 
just going to try to keep grasping, keep fighting uh, to, to try to hold on to this kingdom that Samuel says is already done. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, he's really desperate. And so we see him offering like, what's the phrase when you just like use your words, but your heart isn't in it to like, anyway. No, I'm not sure. So we see him like offering the right words without the right heart. And then we see him fighting and then we see him pleading and we see him doing all these things because he just doesn't want to lose power and control. And even from the beginning, we've seen Saul's heart is not in this. And no matter what you do, if your heart isn't in it, then, then it's not pleasing to God. Yep. Yeah. Even, even when he was called, we struggled to see like, did Saul ever really want the throne? Um, but then once he had it, the glory of God, I suppose. Yeah. Well, and then once he has it, he's still, yeah. Self-seeking. Yeah. It's, it's about self. Yeah. Uh, and so Samuel goes off. He, well, he seems pretty crushed at first, pro- probably because he's the one that's anointed Saul to be this king and look where it's gotten them. But uh, And then God's like, okay, Samuel, it's time to move on. Yeah. Let's get over it. Go, go to Bethlehem. You're going to go to people from Judah, not from Benjamin. God, even in the instructions with, with David's family, tells him, like, don't don't just look at the appearances. Don't just pick the, the tallest guy like we did with Saul. Um, we're, God judges the heart. And not only that, but we end up with this shepherd, not a donkey herder, the shepherd, the youngest boy. It's such a stark difference of the setup of David versus mm-hmm. the setup of Saul. Um, and then Samuel seems to have a thing for spontaneous anointings and just kind of anoints David here. Um, and, and at some point it feels like it's pretty hush hush. Like David family seems to know about the situation, but it, it's, it's not clear that the, the rest of Israel or Saul himself seems to know exactly uh, about this anointing moment. Right. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to see that in Saul. Um, where he seems to be worried more about David's rise to power than he is about the fact that Samuel anointed him. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, really take some time in this chapter or this. Yeah. I mean, I guess you've already read it, but this, this verse for the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I mean, like that's such a coffee cup verse, but I also think it's really a theme and a thread for us to follow as we continue to read first and second Samuel, because we will see this strong contrast between the heart of Saul and the heart of David and what God is looking on and what is pleasing in the sight of God. And even come back to that that poem that Samuel spoke to Saul about God's heart for mercy um, and, and obedience or like rather than sacrifice. Yeah. And we will see David, David have some of these moments over the course of his kingship where he does seem to actually care about those who are um, being treated and marginalized uh, in certain ways. So, but we'll get to some of those as we yeah. go. And then the spirit itself seems to transfer from Saul to David and Saul's sort of um, comes under this mental illness, demonic possession, uh, all these struggles that, that Saul will have from here on out. And David's sort of brought into the palace. Uh, yeah. And help. interesting. The first time we see David's name used is this idea of the spirit of the Lord rushing on him. Yeah. <laughs> and so, it's important to note when you deal with historical narrative, particularly in scripture, like because this chapter and the next chapter kind of go in the sequence that they are, does not necessarily mean that's actual historical sequence of events. So unless there's like a, a, a word or a sentence that says like immediately after this or 10 days later or something along those lines, um, we shouldn't always assume that everything's set up linearly because that's not their interest. They might be um, creating parallel stories for, for and, and, and juxtaposing an order and stuff like that. There's all sorts of reasons that they might put them in certain order. 
orders. And so um, if you're reading through this and you're like, this feels out of time, like did the, how does Saul not know who this David is? And, and so um, as you read through it, it's okay that, that those things are not in the linear order that they are in. Um, I, I think the author has a reason. We'll get there probably a little bit next week. Um, so if it seems to jump back and forth, don't worry about it. I mean, it happens in David and Goliath's story. It's like David defeated Goliath. They took Goliath's head and armor to Jerusalem. But then he also took it to Saul's tent, which was right there on the ground right after that. And so um, there's sometimes language that's out of order, but that's okay with historical narrative and scripture. It doesn't make it wrong. That's just not the author's intent to create the very modernist understanding of how history should be told, which is straight linearly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And pay attention as we watch David. I mean, I think something really unique about him is he's not trying to rush God's plan. He is waiting and trusting God to accomplish what God will accomplish in God's time. Yep. And then we get one of the most famous script, uh, stories in scripture, which is David and Goliath, which now we have all sorts of using of phrases around uh, in modern day uh, sports particularly. Uh, but um, it, it's there's definitely a lot of small nuances in the story that I think are important. Uh, first, it's important though, like the Israelites are totally outmanned, outnumbered, um, even outweaponed. Uh, we, we got the idea that there's no blacksmith. Uh, the Philistines certainly didn't let them have a blacksmith. And, and so, um, yeah, like this is, this is what's happening. And not only that, but there's 40 days that this, um, challenge has been going on with, with Goliath and, um, which was also a common historical practice instead of destroying all your armies and ending up uh, with like 60, 70, 80% of your armies destroyed. Sometimes they would send out these challengers to, to just battle. And then that would determine the victor. And so for 40 days, this has been happening, which historically in scripture, when you come across the number 40, that's usually a good number for testing, whether it's 40 years in the wilderness, whether it's Jesus tested in the desert, 40 days, all of it. And so, um, there's been a test and to solve, and Israelites succeed after these 40 days? No, they, they have certainly failed. Uh, and then we see that uh, that Goliath is six cubits high. He has 600 shekels um, in that spear. His brother, which we'll find out later in scripture, has six fingers. And so there was definitely a connection with Goliath with the, the idea of 666. And not only that, but Goliath's armor has scales on it. And so historically, there's definitely a belief of, of some sort of connection between Goliath and like Satan himself, um, which makes sense because what, what do we have in David is the crusher of the head. Now he doesn't do it fully and it's not the full picture that we will actually see in Jesus, but um, there's all this really interesting imagery brought in here. And then David basically asking the crowd, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God, which is great. Like David's concern is really about almost the name and fame of the living God. Like why, who, who's this guy to say these things about our God? Um, And and so uh, David goes to Saul. Saul asked him what he's been doing. David's like, I've been tending to my sheep. Like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and that's almost as a King, what Saul should be doing, but he's not, Um, he's not defending his sheep. He's not tending to his sheep. Um, He's being a donkey herder as normal. Um, And, and not only that, but like what we knew about, um, Saul's tribe, the Benjaminites, is that one of the things they were good at was slinging rocks. Uh, we saw that in Judges. And, but who shows up is not the Benjaminite Saul to sling a rock, but David, the Judean, um, to, to sling the rock, which I think is just so cool. There's so many little pieces of the story that I think we pass over because we're so familiar with it. Um, but, they're, but I think they're totally interesting. But the mm-hmm. main themes of the story are the same, that David was one who was willing to trust God for the victory. It wasn't uh, the, 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 the practical is not to go find your five rocks and, and enter your battles, but it's to, 
to trust God? Uh, are we paralyzed by logic? Are we willing to trust God uh, that that He uh, will will win the battles, win the victory, and even more so, the the Jesus part of that of um, you had all the Israelites facing an enemy that they did not know how to defeat, and it took God's shepherd boy from Bethlehem to defeat the greater enemy. And um, in, in Jesus, we had the same thing. We are like the Israelites who are looking at the face of sin and death going, I don't know how to defeat this guy. And it took a shepherd boy from Bethlehem to come and to defeat our greatest enemy of sin and death uh, through his through his conquering uh, on the cross. And so, yeah. um, and now we get to be like the Israelites and enjoy the spoils of that victory. And so, um, yeah, it's such a beautiful gospel connection, I think, in the story of David. Yeah, we talk a lot about, you know, from Philippians, the peace that transcends understanding, guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And it, it is truths like this that once we understand that God is big enough to overcome anything, that we will have that peace that transcends understanding. And so if you are struggling with a lack of peace in a certain area of your life, I'd encourage you as a follower of Christ just to lean back into the story and to look at the words of David and remember the God who he trusted in. And that is the God that we are trusting in in the midst of whatever circumstances, whether it's a job or coronavirus um, or anything in between. Yeah. And so after the victory, David and Jonathan basically become like BFFs, uh, making sort of a friendship love covenant uh, with each other of saying like we are we are bonded um and we even see sort of a visual transfer as jonathan sort of takes his <clears throat> probably royal clothing yeah. his sort of uh, as the prince of the kingdom and and puts it upon david um and and in some ways it's sort of giving up in, in some ways a throne here of of uh, i don't know if he's formally doing that yet but um, but it's definitely it, a foreshadowing it, yeah. and the author put it in here to point that out and we get sort of almost even a, a little bit of Joseph in, in the way David is. Like he's humble, he's working hard in the kingdom, and he keeps getting elevated uh, up to positions of, mm-hmm. of power and rank. Yeah. And Saul just has a lot of jealousy for all this. Um, and uh, eventually has this sort of evil spirit this sort of um, um, that, that just instills him to try to kill David. Not just once, but twice. Um, but uh, I think the most important statement comes in here about David of the Lord was with him. Like when that statement is attached to somebody in scripture, that's usually hugely significant. Mm -hmm. And so um, the whole scene sort of confirms for Saul who from this point on will just be full of anger, paranoia, protectionism of his throne. It it will just reign in in Saul's life. I feel like Saul is kind of like Wile E. Coyote and David's the road runner. And then, like, no matter what he does, it's not working out according to his plan, yeah. and he's the one who's suffering for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's certainly. It's like every step he has, like David's another step ahead or ready for a response. Yeah. yeah. So then Saul, in another attempt to maybe control David, get your enemies closer, or have some sort of influence over him, um, he promises one daughter to David, gives her away to someone else, and then gives his daughter Michael to David. Yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely a little bit of a. Um, Rachel and Leah mm-hmm. kind of storytelling here because eventually David does get his bride by working twice as hard as the original expectation was of, of getting 200 foreskins instead of a hundred, which is obviously a weird story. I don't know how many movies actually tell this part of the story. Um, but, uh, yeah, he does show up. And, and I think the expectation for Saul was, Hey, if David has to go get all these 
kill all these Philistines. There's no way David's going to make him back. Right. Um, but he does. So he's trying to kill him. And, you know, but we see all these things like Saul attached all the powerful, mighty men to him. And so he's doing that. And he's afraid David is going to take his throne, probably. So he's like, oh, maybe if I marry him into the family, he'll be loyal. He's just trying all these different things to stop God's plan. Um, and, and you can't, you cannot yeah. stop God's plan. Yeah. And, and, and the opposite is David, who doesn't even feel like he's like trying to take the throne. Right. I, I don't think he's, he's avoiding just it. He's just, yeah. Yeah, he's just serving. And he's, he, hey, hey, uh, God's name is being profane. Let me go kill that guy. And it wasn't out of the, uh, the, the, the desire to like try to steal the throne from Saul. It was like, look, like I'm just being obedient and, mm-hmm. and, and being where I'm supposed to be right now. Gosh, it's so I'm really enjoying this. I also am just enjoying like a slowed down story, I think, compared to reading so many things happening so quickly. Yeah. All right, let's jump to the New Testament. And uh, we get the story, opening story with the faith of a Canaanite woman. And, and so I think uh, Jesus had been in the Galilee trying to get away after sort of the death of John the Baptist and not being very successful at it. And I think he sort of like left the, 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 the Jewish world to be like, I got to go to the Gentiles if this crowd's finally going to leave me alone. Um, and he gets out to a tire inside him. And he interacts with the Canaanite woman, uh, which is interesting because the Canaanites didn't exist here. So Matthew definitely wants you to, to draw out, like, this is an outsider. This is somebody who's not part of uh, the Israelite people. She's not even Samaritan. She is full on an outsider. Um, and, and Jesus, yes, does call her a dog. But it's important to note, dog is not necessarily a derogatory term as we think. Pigs, dogs, some of the ways that Gentiles get talked about. Uh, connecting animals with the Gentiles was common. Um, plants tend to refer to Israel, animals to Gentiles. And we've even recently seen in the stories of Jesus, the Gentiles being connected to birds, to fish, to things that we historically have probably more positive connotations to. Um, we just have sometimes a negative connotation in a modern context of the word dogs being a negative thing. Um, but it would have, would have just simply identified her as a Gentile. And so I've puzzled and, and Sarah and I have gone a little bit back and forth and, and, and I have a little bit of a theory, but it's complicated. And, um, I wouldn't put like a stake in the ground of this is exactly what's happening. But, um, when Jesus makes a statement, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel or to the house, to lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, I'm curious whether Jesus literally means that or not. And um, how much we know of Jesus' humanity, how much does, does Jesus know in his humanity about exactly what his mission is, all the details concerning it? Because up till now, Jesus has mostly been teaching the people of Israel. And, and yes, he's taught about the Gentiles, teaching them to bless the Gentiles. But I don't think, I wonder if Jesus doesn't know that the pouring out of the spirit that's going to happen to the Gentiles through him. Maybe, maybe not. Once again, there's a mystery of what Jesus knows when he knows it or why. Um, and either way, I, I'm, I'm okay because Matthew will certainly take this story and make it a launching point to this whole conversation about the Gentiles. Um, but I think there's a callback in what's happening here because he's in Sidon and, and there's a woman who uh, is asking for bread and, and, and that should feel like a callback to, to first Kings 17 where you're in Sidon and there's a woman and, and she's got bread and there's a prophet who also needs to eat, who's called master. Um, which is, uh, there's a lot of legend that Elijah was the first rabbi. Um, mm. and, and so, um, I think this woman picking up on that and even kind of quoting it is, is basically saying like, look, even, even Phoenician, Phoenician widows or, or this Canaanite woman eat crumbs from the table of the master or Elijah's table. And so, um, I wonder if she just has shown such understanding of what God has always been doing and what God is now doing through Jesus. And Jesus just amazed by her understanding of it or whether Jesus is like coming to realize the mission to the Gentiles either way. 
I think it's a, it's an amazing moment for Jesus to go, you get it, woman. Um, you understand how this all works. And I think the next few stories drive, drive it home from there. Yeah, I think Jesus here is really illustrating and teaching his disciples something that they wouldn't get until later, but that the blessing of Jesus is to go beyond just the Jews or just the lost sheep of Israel to the Gentiles. And we see here more of the fulfillment of Genesis 12, 3, how they are blessed to be a blessing. And so, um, yeah, I think it was, I see it. I mean, I guess it can be both, but like, I see it really as yeah. like an, an, sort of an object lesson yeah, or just a lesson for the disciples. We just don't know because of the mystery of what does Jesus know in his humanity right. and what does he not know and how much does he use his God goggles or whatever we'd want to call them. Um, yeah. <laughs> like he could see the world God differently goggles. than we. How much does he tap into that or how much has he set aside like as Philippians 2 said he set aside those things. So yeah, we just don't know. But at the same time, it does lead to these conversations. It lead to these next few moments where uh, they find out Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Now, beside the Sea of Galilee, did that mean the Gentile area? Did that mean not? Uh, is that a phrase referring to the east side? Because uh, we find out from the other gospel writers, he definitely goes to the Decapolis. Mark makes that straight up. That's where he goes next. Um, and, and so... Um, having that interaction with the Canaanite woman, does he just hightail it now to the Gentiles either because he's come to understand or he's teaching his disciples, look, I want you to know the Gentiles are a part of this and uh, he starts healing them. He starts teaching them. And and hence why these non-Jews will go on to say, glorify the God of Israel, because um, I think they're, they're seeing and Jesus is teaching, look, you guys are a part of what God is doing right now. Yeah. Matthew is really strategic in pointing out that it's the God of Israel who they're glorifying. Yep. And then we get the feeding of 4,000, which the previous story, all the highlight of the numbers was around 2 and 5 and 12, all these numbers that uh, carried with them heavily Jewish connections. And in, in this one, we get the Gentile numbers of like 4 and 7. Like These are full-on Gentile numbers, seven Canaanite nations, uh, four being the four directions out from Israel. Like That was the idea. And so um, I think where Jesus is like, look, like what I've came to do is to feed the house, like like Jewish people, like people that would eat off of my bread and my blood, like I'm here to feed them. Uh, and, and the same is true now for the Gentiles. And I'm here for the Gentiles too. And I think the story carries with it some of that. Yeah. And I mean, just as a side note, like these people were so desperate to be with Jesus, they didn't eat for three days so they could stay with him. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever or will ever long for Jesus that much. I really like to eat well, and, and and how much more for the, these disciples who are like in this pagan territory being like, we can't go get food anymore. Like at least in the old places, they probably could have found some local village. But now there is nothing in Decapolis that they're probably allowed to eat. And so um, they're all collectively waiting for food. Um, yeah. And then Jesus goes across the lake. And they're like, hey, give us a sign. And, and Jesus is like, come on, like you guys can look at the weather and understand how things work. How are you missing what I'm doing here? Look, like the sign of Jonah is here, which if you went back to, to the previous time on the previous podcast where we talked about the sign of Jonah, like, yes, like we tied into the, the two days in the, or three days in, uh, in resurrection story. But Matthew goes on to talk about uh, the Ninevites repenting and the Queen of Sheba repenting tied into that sentence. And, and I think it's, I think the sign of Jonah is about the repentance of the Gentiles. And so mm-hmm. um, he, he comes across and they're like, give us a sign. Jesus is like, I've given you a sign. I was just across the lake and all these Gentiles came and repented and, and, and want to follow the God of Israel. And like, this is your sign. This is the miracle that you should be waiting for. What, what more do you want? And it's such a stark contrast between his experience across the lake and his experience with the people who should know better. Yeah. And you know, these are the leaders 
and they do not want to come under the authority of Jesus, but they do want to see his power. Um, they keep asking for one more proof of who he is, but they know. We've already seen that these le- leaders cannot deny God's work, but they are still reasoning their way out of it or rejecting it. And uh, be cautious to not reason your way out of how God is working. Don't be so much of a skeptic that you um, aren't willing to see how God is moving in miraculous ways around you. Yeah. And so Jesus warns his disciples about these guys saying like, watch out for their yeast, which um, he will tie into sinful teaching by the end of that passage of verse 12. But um, beware of it. Like their legalism that, that leaves out mercy and compassion and does not bless the Gentiles. That's no interest in the Gentiles. Like they are not teaching what God is really about and you need to watch out for it. Jesus even clarifies with them. Do you guys not get it about this bread stuff? Like, and, and he highlights the numbers. Even Mark goes out of his way to highlight the numbers that much more. But Matthew certainly highlights it here, like the 12 and the 7. Like, this is about Jews and Gentiles all coming to um, partake in the blessing of God. Like, that is what's happening here. And 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 I think that's sort of the, the play out of the story. Um, and, and for Jesus to be like, like, come on, disciples, you got to get this. You got to understand this. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of connection here. Like you mentioned to bread and this idea that Jesus is the bread of life yeah. for us. And so we're seeing how he is the bread of life to a Canaanite woman. We're seeing how he is the bread of life to these 4,000 people plus the disciples. Yep. Um, yep. And so, uh, in, in, Ma- in John, I think it is that Jesus feeds them all the bread and then eventually like, as the crowd's like, like I think hoping for more sustenance, like physical sustenance, she's like, let me tell you, this is about like spiritual bread and blood and you're going to have to eat my body and my blood. Like mm. he, he takes a very uh, not seeker oriented route. <laughs> he suddenly goes like a really bizarre to probably their ears. But Jesus goes like, I, I need you to understand like when I'm offering a spiritual bread, not just physical bread. If you just think I'm going to meet your physical needs in life and make you comfortable, that's not what I'm here to do. Mm. I'm here to meet your soul needs. And so, um, I, John spent a lot more time on Jesus teaching related to, uh, the feeding of the, the thousands, but we'll get there. So then they go to Caesarea Philippi. Yeah. And this is, so this is way up, uh, North of, of Israel. And this is, um, if, if the Decapolis would have made the disciples scared, like Caesarea Philippi is like going to Mardi Gras during, uh, in, in New Orleans. And so, um, it is the, the home of temple debauchery in, in pagan world. And so, uh, it has a long history. Some of that's tied into Baal, uh, in the previous, the, the Canaanites and other folks. Um, there was water that flowed out of this rock. Um, water was always tied into Baal, um, as sustenance and, and things like that. Eventually the Greeks take over. It gets connected to Pan. Um, and both with Baal and with Pan, there was a lot of fertility conversations going on uh, around these gods. And so you would have a pandemonium. You'd have this festival where thousands, if not uh, close to a million, came. It was a giant orgy event. There'd be this all sorts of phallic symbolism. Uh, there would be bestiality, which was super normative as part of this, where sort of tie into the dancing goats, which why you name your coffee shop after bestiality with goats. I don't know, but you could. And, um, and you'd have this ceremony, you'd have these celebrations all, all going on in this place. Like it was the, the depths of, of things that happened probably couldn't even be covered uh, in this podcast. Um, but, um, it was disturbing, 
It was awful. Uh, it was highly sexualized. Um, and, and this was sort of what was part of the worship in, in the time. And, and so Jesus goes to this place. Like that is what the sound is known for. Um, and, and not only that, but it has this, this water source, which also had the name at the time that the gates of, of hell, the gates of Hades, uh, because it came up from the underground. There was sort of this idea that, that this is the connection to the underworld. And so, this is where Jesus goes, and he has this conversation with the disciples. And I think what he says here ties into this whole place. But first, he he asks, "What do people say? Who do people say I am?" Um, which is always a good question for any of us. Like, what does the world say I am? And then he turns to the disciples, and say, "Who do you guys say I am?" And Peter, being the first to speak, most times says, "You are the Christ," which is great. I don't think I don't think that's the most provocative statement. I think the next one is the Son of the Living God, um, which. Uh, I think is clearly identifying Jesus, not just as Messiah, but as God himself. And, um, and I think there's some tie into Deuteronomy five where, where God uses the term living God. The first time God uses the term living God. Um, and, and, and in that text, God gives them the, the law and then, uh, ultimately responds saying like, yep, in your confession, you were right in all that you said. And so uh, that's Jesus' reaction here to Peter too, going, yes, you were right. You got this. God has revealed this to you. You're listening to what I said and and you are saying it correctly. Um, but why come here? And, and I think that's an important question. And I think the interaction between um, the renaming of Peter and all, I think matters right here because um, it's important to know that that there's two words that that Jesus is using here. One is Petros, which is uh, what he renames Peter to, which sort of means rock. It's it's like a small rock. Um, and then there's and then there's uh, Petra. And at some point, um, Jesus is using both words, and Petra means like cliff face. And so, um, with the phrase that Jesus uses here is like, I'm going to rename you Peter, small rock. And upon this cliff face, I will build my church. He actually uses a different word. And and so is Jesus specifically talking about building the church on Peter, like the Catholics believe? I, I don't think so. And, and I think there's multiple reasons to believe that. And, and the change of words, certainly. Is Jesus talking about Peter's confession? Is that what he's going to build his church on? Maybe. And I think there's some allowability there of, of it was Peter's statement that he's going to build uh, upon. But... Why end up in Caesarea Philippi if you're not going to reference anything in Caesarea Philippi? And, and I think what Jesus is doing and, and, and what he points to, instead of pointing to Peter saying, upon this rock, or Peter's confession upon this rock, I think he might literally point to the, the place, this, this sort of pan-temple world that existed. And it's built into this cliff face. Um, I'll, I'll include a picture of it. Um, it. It's very clearly this this cliff face kind of place. And And I think Jesus is pointing to it and going, look, I just taught you about all the Gentiles, all the mess that we're going to enter into, my mission to the Gentiles. And guess what? We're not going to build our church in Capernaum and in the safety of, of stuff over here. We are entering into the mess of the pagan world and and the darkness, like places like this, and I will build my church here. It's not going to be out of safety. We're going to build, we're going to go into the pagan worlds and bring light into darkness. And guess what? It will not prevail against us. The church is actually on the offensive. The gates uh, exist. The, the hell is what's gated. And and, and Jesus's church will be on the offensive. Um, and, and it will be in the midst of the pagan world. It's going to go forward and, and to be built in places like 
where pandemonium happens. And so, um, well, even I, the idea of, of Jesus saying Simon Bar Jonah, like, sure, Simon Peter's dad was named John, but the reference to Jonah, I mean, we just talked about the sign of Jonah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like, you're going to go to the Ninevites, my disciples, and guess what? The, the church is going to be built there. Yeah. So this is a, I mean, I think this is a story that if you've read the Bible before, you have read this story, but to get the imagery and the picture of the geography of what's happening, how Jesus is sitting at a place called the gates of Hades and he speaks about, um, a church being built there and uh, not being overcome by the gates of Hades is just really cool imagery that we miss out on if we don't understand the archeological yeah, yeah, uh, it, but yeah, I'll include a few pictures. Feel free to look at them. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important to know that context. Yeah, and I think the other cool thing here about Peter, specifically in Jesus's promise to him, is that uh, Peter was qualified not by his performance, but by his uh, by his confession of faith. And so we'll see. We're going to spend the next few stories talking about Peter. Um, and remember that, like all of this promise, this huge promise, was given to Peter before he proved himself. Yeah. Yeah, Peter's a, quite a roller coaster ride uh, of a character um, because, yeah, he just has this awesome confession. His his rabbi just said, "Yes, you got it right," um, and and I think his confidence was through the roof. And so the very next story, when Jesus goes, "But I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to have to die," um, Jesus is like, "No way!" Uh, I think I think his confidence might have gone a little too far there, uh, and Jesus immediately rebukes him, going, "No, right. get behind me, uh, Satan! Get behind me, enemy!" Uh, adversary uh, get behind me you will not um, you will not prevail yeah in the last story Peter was you know a rock and here he's a stumbling block yeah yeah, um, so interesting contrast. But I think it's so cool that we get this story of Peter. Uh, he is a hot mess, but that doesn't disqualify him from doing the work that God has assigned him to. So Peter got a calling and a task, but he also wasn't ready for it yet. He needed to be humbled a little bit more. So you guys pray that God would humble you and equip you through that humility to, f- to fulfill the ministry task he's given you. I mean, we'll see the same thing happening with David. Like we oftentimes always probably need to be humbled before we can step into our ministry task and then humbling throughout the way. We oftentimes always, always, probably. I know. I like, <laughs> actually, I think we always, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so then we were to, we get the instruction that I think we've heard a thousand times and probably still don't get the full or, or really feel the full impact of Jesus' mm-hmm. statement to take up that we would take up our crosses and follow him. That if, um, what, what he's calling, what he is living out, which is preaching and teaching of the kingdom, is going to uh, get him killed and required him to, to give up everything. That following him and his kingdom requires us to give up everything and to be willing to to suffer and to die no matter what uh, for his kingdom. And um, that's the mission, that we would take up uh, the cross, that we would um, identify everything in our lives related to Jesus and not our own self. Yeah, it makes you think of that Jim Elliott quote. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Yep. Yep. And so, yeah, absolutely. And then we get the transfiguration story, which uh, I know we talked about when we went through Luke. But once again, like this is meant to be this sort of Mount Sinai type story. Uh, that we're meant to see some of the overlap of six days. Three people are going up with Jesus or on a mountain. God's appearance on the mountain. There's, there's imagery there. Um, I think there's connections to Deuteronomy 5, but if you guys want to dive in and and look at those, feel free. Uh, There's definitely some language overlap. Um, And then Peter wants to build a tent, which makes sense. You get to the mountain, 
what's the first thing they do afterwards? They build a tent for, for God's dwelling. And I think Jesus, Peter just wants like tabernacle there on the mountain. Uh, the voice of God comes. He says these quotes again. Uh, I think he, he's pulling from all three of sort of the Jewish world of writing, um, whether it's the law, the prophets, um, or the writings. Uh, and so, um, and not only that, but you have Moses, Elijah representing the, the law and the prophets. I think, I think the, the expectation, uh, from many Jews at this time, from the Midrash, from other, other teaching was that, um, when the Messiah comes, um, the, the old Testament will all testify about him. And not only that, but he would appear on this mountain with Moses and Elijah. And it has this, just, there's a story tied into Psalm 43, which is great. Cause it also talks about a mountain there. Um, and, and I think this is sort of the, the moment of, of Jesus going, like, this is his greater than Moses kind of moment. He's having his mount, mount, uh, kind of um, a mountaintop moment where Moses is now subsidiary to him mm-hmm. and Elijah's second to him. And, and um, God confirming through his voice that this is, this is, this is the son. This is my son. Um, and yeah, I just think it's um, this beautiful confirmation moment, which amazingly Peter will go on to write in one of his letters saying like, look, like that was amazing. This transfiguration moment, but now we have something more sure than that mm. of the prophetic word of God. It's like, Oh, like, I don't know. I'd be pretty sure watching the transfiguration. Uh, but, but Peter points out something even greater. Yeah. And you know, I think I may have mentioned this in the Luke when we talked about this in Luke, but you know, we saw Moses die before he entered the promised land. And then where do we see him show up again? In the promised land with Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. I mean, that's a pretty cool way to experience the promised land yeah. for Moses. And disciples still aren't getting it. At some point, like, you could be like, well, these disciples are just fools. But at the same time, like, they're not totally missing it. They just think Jesus is coming still to, to, to wipe out Rome. And they're not understanding the sort of upside-down nature really of the kingdom yet. Mm. And so I think we do the same thing. Like, I think there's ways that like we like 80% get Jesus, but then like one of the most crucial things about his kingdom, we just don't get, I don't think we always get the upside downness of his kingdom compared to the culture that we walk in or the expectations that we have of how Jesus should work in the culture that we live in. Um, and, and so we're sometimes like Jesus being like, so Jesus, when are you going to do that thing? <laughs> it's like, Jesus probably looks down at us being like, do you not understand what my kingdom's really about? And, and I think the disciples constantly have those sort of moments. Yeah. Yeah. So Psalm 39, nine and 12. Um, yeah. Psalm 39. What a mix. Um, yeah. There's sort of hope and then there's sort of despair. It's, it's a little bit all over the place. I just see it as a really humbling Psalm. Um, David is considering that, like how temporary he is compared to how eternal God is. And it made me think of Psalm 90 written by Moses, who says really similar things. And there's this theme and there's this thread of people who are humble understand how great God is. And when you understand how great God is, you realize how small you are. And I think that's kind of what we see David doing here. Yeah. Yeah, Spurgeon talking about the sermon says, there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. And it's important for us to sometimes know when those are. Yeah. Um, And then Psalm 9 a reminder that evil is temporary and the righteous will endure. God will have uh, his, his ultimate victory. Um, and, and many actually tie this story into David's victory over Goliath, the Psalm. So um, I think it's fitting that we read it this week. Yeah, I mean, God judging the wicked and giving hope and remembering the poor makes sense that it would connect to Goliath and it connects to, you know, Hannah's prayer, prophetic word, and yeah. 
Or Samuel. And when you get to read to Psalm 10, which uh, we'll get there eventually, um, just know that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are, are likely uh, crafted together. They actually form an acrostic with the alphabet. Um, so uh, our Protestant Bible separated them. But that happens with a number of Psalms. Yeah, I don't understand it why. It gets into the how the Protestants decided to form the Bible differently than Jews and Catholics did. Um, and they didn't always choose the best choices to me, but... Hey, it is what it is. I don't think it changes the word of God. The divisions are secondary to the words themselves. So, um, yeah. Anyways. Sometimes I want to read a Bible without any like headlines or right. verses, or I just want to see Numbers. how experience, how different the experience would be if there weren't all these breaks. Yeah, and it's important to know as li- those listening to this, like all the numbers for verses, all the chapter headings, all the chapters themselves aren't in the original manuscripts. And so uh, they're, they're theological decisions. Lots that have of to the be grammar. Made. Yeah. Well, that too, but um, there's theological decisions that just got made. And uh, sometimes dividing up chapters where they're at actually ruins the flow of the chapter. Uh, we're going to see that in, in multiple places. It's like Ephesians, the whole like wives submit to your husband, you know, the line right before that, which gets divided right. out by a header is submit, submit to, to one, one another out of love. And so, um, it's, it's a choice to put that header in there, but it also causes uh, a, a, a total different interpretation by putting it there. And so um, just be wary of that as you read through and you look at context. Don't just look to read back to the, to the header. Sometimes skip a few more lines to see how that transition worked. Yeah. All right. And then Psalm 12. I just feel like David is really in the struggle. He feels like there's no righteous people. There's just oppressors everywhere. Uh, But God speaks to him and God reminds him. It's like, I know that this is what you see right now. I also see the oppression of the poor. I also see the needy and I will advocate for them and righteous and for the righteous. Um, So I think we have to remember that, especially, I mean, again, I don't know when you're listening to this podcast, but in times right now, we are, we are fighting and we are praying for justice, especially uh, for black people in America. And God sees us and God will work. We don't know when or how, but we know that he will. Yeah. Yeah. There's people speaking falsely and proudly and, and God will have a display of justice over them. Um, but it's important to, to remember this because uh, we're going to see David sort of arise and defend the poor next week. Uh, those that are, are mm-hmm. um, losing, yeah, losing cool. out on certain things. And so, um, yeah. So we're going to see it enacted by David very next week. All right. So what should we look for? Yeah. So I think um, Chris referenced this a little bit earlier, but there's a lot of parallels with David and Saul. They are presented with the same opportunities and handle them super differently. So just kind of compare their behaviors in the same circumstances. Um, And then I would also encourage you to pay attention to the times you see the word spear or the times you see the word swords, Um, especially spear. There's some connections and there's a lesson to be learned in those threads. Um, New Testament, I think a lot of what Jesus is going to talk about is sort of like family business within the church. What are the instructions and commands for how we are to interact with our Christian brothers and sisters? So pay attention to that. That's good. Yeah. Uh, David trades his lyre or his sling for a sword. And so um, this will, we're going to see him actually use it pretty early. Um, uh, and so, um, what's he going to do with it? Is he going to be a warmonger like Saul? Is he going to be like all the other Kings? Is he just going to be bloodthirsty or is he going to use it for right and, and good? Um, what's the situation that first arises where he uses the sword? So uh, I think it's important. And then, uh, in the new Testament, as we get into this whole section where it starts with kind of the conversation of who's the greatest, um, think about a thread that sort of unites those texts. I think Matthew has something in mind. Um, I don't think it's as easy to parse out, uh, but but think about um, what is Jesus 
teaching and how are all these things interrelated to each other. Mm. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks, Thanks. y'all.